0: Major League Soccer announced that it will blow by its previously stated goal of 28 teams and continue expanding to 30 teams. Spoiler alert, it won't stop there. MLS will continue to expand well beyond the 30 teams. There's plenty of talent, domestic and internationally, to fill those rosters. MLS's growth in the form of expansion is a cause for optimism, but cautious optimism. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome for the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the latest MLS expansion news. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to talk about the Ajax effect. We'll be answering your questions in our Hashtag Ask Alexi segment, which will include stuff about Zlatan and some Alex Morgan and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this Monday morning? I am good, uh, particularly after
1: watching an excellent episode of Game of Thrones.
0: Here we go. Here we go. Uh, For those that didn't listen last week, I do not watch Game of Thrones. I've never watched it. As we all know, my hard, steadfast rule is that I don't watch anything unless it is done. It is finite, and then I can binge it from start to finish. So at the end of this, which is the Ultimate and the, the final season, I will be able to watch Game of Thrones. But I feel like I'm living vicariously through all of you. So last week, if you remember, not everybody was impressed by the first of the final uh, episodes for this uh, season. Was this any better? Not, I know you liked it, Mossy, but someone that shall not be named uh, was not happy about it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed last week's, and I thought this one was even better. But our producer, uh, Alex Dowd, is doubling down on his criticism. He This morning, he said, crap again. Wow. This week, which, at this point, like, Skip Bayless can't believe how contrarian Alex is being. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. He is so on an island right now. And, in fact, we had the... Uh, Fox uh, Women's World Cup seminar last week, and we multiple people came up to me who listened to the pod and said they couldn't believe Alex Dowd's take. So uh, without even <laughs> saying a word, he's become the most controversial figure it's on this amazing.
0: podcast. It's amazing. It's a hot take without actually saying anything. He yep. just kind of puts it out into the universe and then it revolves back. Uh, so you you mentioned the uh, the Fox uh, the Symposium uh, meeting seminar that we had, uh, it was really fun. It was really incredible last week to get together Everybody from our team that is going to be working this summer on this summer of soccer um, from from, uh, multiple sides because we have obviously a uh, Women's World Cup production, but we also have a Gold Cup production that's going to be overlapping. And so that's why it's this summer of soccer and not just people in front of the camera, which totaled up, gosh, it was almost 40 talent Uh, that was that was there uh, and still a couple that weren't even there that are going to be involved this summer Uh, and then everybody behind the scenes and it's really just fun to see and look at what we have planned for these uh, these couple of months of soccer anything stood out to you uh, with regards to the uh, seminar actually yes
1: Uh, during the lunch break I ran into grant wall in the cafeteria and he brought up the podcast and I joked that we are now podcast rivals and he gave me this incredibly dismissive look, like how dare you put your little dog and pony show <laughs> on par with the <laughs> podcasts I do. Uh, So uh, offense was taken, Grant.
0: You know, well, we all know that, uh, you know, Grant, and um, we love Grant, and what he does over there with Sports Illustrated and everything is all fine and well, but we all know it's an elitist type of approach to uh, soccer. And, you know, we want as many people into the tent as possible, and we don't look down our nose at anybody for who they support or how long they've supported or anything like that. We don't care. I think that's what we're going to stand on over here is that we are the people's podcast, all right? Grant is, you know, the uh, the uh, um, like I said, the the elites of the world when they want to, the the euro, the euro snobs and the soccer snobs out there. That's your podcast, uh, but we love Grant, we love, and uh, he does a great job uh, over there. I, I, I will finish it up with this. So it was not just a uh, a seminar to kind of go over all the ins and outs of what we're going to do this summer. We also had a marketing element of it. Uh, and you will see pictures coming out, and I, I tweeted one out about uh, the legend uh, J.P. Della Camera. You will see pictures coming out uh, that pose us and put us in uh, attire and in a setting that is very, very different than the normal uh, type of setting that you are accustomed to seeing a lot of this soccer talent out there. And we were surrounded by talent everywhere you looked. There was another great voice and personality when it comes to broadcasting the game of soccer. So you are in for a treat this summer. Uh, the best and the brightest have been assembled uh, and we'll, bringing it, uh, we'll be bringing it to you, whether it's the studio shows that we're going to do uh, from Paris and from Los Angeles whether it is the actual game broadcasts that are going to happen, obviously, over in France and all over the country when it comes to the Gold Cup. We got you covered this summer in that summer of soccer. Anything else, must before we light this candle? Nope. All right, let's do it. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pod off with... Alexi Lawless' State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. To the surprise of no one, Major League Soccer announced that it will blow by its previously stated goal of 28 teams and continue expanding to 30 teams. Spoiler alert, it won't stop there. At 24 teams, MLS already ranks as one of the biggest leagues in the world. England, Italy, Spain and France, they all have 20 teams. Germany, Netherlands, Mexico and Portugal, they have 18 teams. At its height, way back in the 70s and early 80s, the NESL had 24 teams. But rapid overexpansion and questionable additions in ownership helped lead to that league's demise. NASL has always been used as a case study and a cautionary tale, and Major League Soccer has tried to avoid repeating those mistakes of the past. But since 2005, MLS has added 18 new teams and gone from a $10 million to a $200 million expansion fee. So, is all this expansion good? Well, for one thing, The American soccer landscape and culture in 2019 bears little resemblance to that of 1979. 40 years has brought about an unprecedented popularity, relevancy, and appetite for the game. Also, the MLS ownership table, well, that consists of a very large group of billionaires. It is a pretty successful, smart, and expensive table that's not used to failing. MLS will continue to expand well beyond the 30 teams. There's plenty of talent, domestic and internationally, to fill those rosters. Because of country size, I also think MLS will become more regionalized and rivalries will become much more important. We might even see a situation where MLS gets so big that it splits into a MLS 1 and MLS 2 scenario with some sort of promotion relegation. Yes, MLS's growth in the form of expansion is a good thing and cause for optimism, but cautious optimism. Because the truth is, no matter how big MLS gets, it's never too big to fail. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union for this week. I guess the simple question is, uh, in your estimation, is this rapid expansion good for Major League Soccer?
1: I wouldn't go too far beyond 30. Uh, I made this point last week. Since its inception in 1996, MLS has had this dilemma. Do we model ourselves around other sports leagues in the United States or Mm. other soccer leagues around the world? And in this regard, they've clearly chosen other sports leagues in the United States. But even NBA, MLB, NFL, uh, they haven't gone too far past 30. Um, I think there is a point where it just becomes unwieldy, where there's just too many teams to keep track of, and it's just odd and bizarre. I mean, you don't don't have that issue. You think they can keep going. Is there a limit in your mind that you would say, okay, enough
0: is enough here? I think I said this before, but why would I ever want to limit a city and a culture that wants professional soccer as part of their – Palette of entertainment. And I said it in the State of the Union, I think the regionalization of, of soccer in particular, because what, what soccer and what professional soccer in a lot of these cities and cultures is now be, you know, coming to mean, I think it lends itself uh, to that. So will it be unwieldy uh, uh, I, I, if it gets too big? I, I don't know. Now, I, I will say this, and, and I, I was talking about this, with I can't remember who I was talking about it, but from the very moment that Major League Soccer started back in 1996 and before, even when we were talking about it. And many of you weren't around back then or even born back then, back in the 1900s, uh, after the 94 World Cup and even leading up to the 94, there was a constant uh, beating of the drum that, look, while this is great uh, and this is something that we want to do, you do not want to make those same mistakes twice of the, N- uh, of the NSL in the past. And not just the NSL. I mean, the, the, our history is littered with leagues uh, and defunct leagues that came and went for whatever different reason. Now, I will admit that we are in a very, very different time and place when it comes to what soccer is in the United States. And I think that the country, and when you say country, it's because if you're talking MLS, it's countries because of Canada. I think both of these countries and cultures can sustain and withstand this type of expansion. I don't think it's, it's, it's the pathway to repeating uh, history.
1: You would agree the format is very important. Mm-hmm. My main objection to the 48-team World Cup is not a dilution of quality; it's the format they're proposing. 16 groups of three, I think, is bizarre. So MLS can keep expanding if they want, but they always always have to be conscious then of tweaking the format and coming up with something that makes sense for the number of teams you have that everyone is happy with. So I think that's important.
0: They do, but I, I mean that's that's a problem that can be dealt with. I think right. the bigger problem is if you can't sustain and and supply the actual talent that is going to give each and every one of these markets a viable type of product on the field so but but the the, the globe now much more so than in the past is 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 the marketplace
1: well particularly we talked last week about parity mm-hmm. and obviously a lot of it in MLS is manufactured with the salary cap but you could argue expansion contributes to that uh diluting uh the quality I mean there, there's a lot more good players in MLS today than there were in 1996 but it's not always as a parent because their players are so spread out that no individual teams are that much better than the best teams were in 1996. So if you're somebody that thinks MLS could benefit from super clubs emerging, is that a concern at all that if you keep expanding it dilutes the quality in that sense? You mean in terms of having super clubs? Yeah, it just there you could the league could be adding more and more talent, but it's so spread out amongst all the different teams that it sort of Well it
0: depends if like we talked about last week if they go to a different type of model where they allow people to spend whatever they want and then then the expectations within each market and from outside markets get get adjusted accordingly so if you're coming into it and that parity and that manufactured parity still exists in whatever form I know it's gotten a little bit uh, diluted, but if it still ex- exists in that fundamentally, we believe in everybody having a chance to a chance to win. I, I guess that that could be problematic, but if not, then you're gonna, still going to have those have uh, and those have-nots.
1: Now, if you go all the way to 40, a lot of people have proposed this, uh, splitting it up into two divisions and having uh, promotion relegation. I wouldn't look at that then as MLS having 40 teams. I'd look at it as two different 20-team leagues. Uh, how do you think that would go down with the promotion relegation crowd? Because you'd still be doing
0: it within a closed system of it's just those 40 exactly. teams that can move one You're never going to please them and that, unless it is the absolute traditional type of MLS. But w- we can talk to a blue in the face, but if, if that's the type of of scenario that actually gets a version of promotion relegation, why would you be against that? I mean, if you're just going to be adamant that unless it's exactly the way it's done around the world, then I'm not going to like it no matter what. And and so what we're talking about here is MLS gets into the 40s. They split into two different leagues. You have an MLS 1 and an MLS 2. And essentially what we're saying is an intra-MLS in that MLS is the is still the league uh, and the business, but intra-MLS type of uh, scenario. Now, the problem is, is that, as you mentioned, and quite rightly so, the the Folks out there that are adamant about having a traditional type of promotion relegation and so adamant that they believe that that is the great elixir that's going to change everything, they will look at that as a bastardized version of promotion relegation and will will not want it. The other part of the problem is, is no matter any way you slice it, somebody has to agree, as we've said before, to voluntarily accept more risk in an already risky proposition. What MLS owner is going to want to be in MLS 2? OK, because just in it, it's a stigma is a, a, probably a bad word, but you are in a lower division. Why would you voluntarily want to assume that risk that you could go down into a lower division when you bought into it with the understanding that there is no relegation? Now, we talked about the uh, expansion fees, and it's it's amazing that 10, 15 years ago, you could have had an MLS team for Ten million dollars or whatever it means, and now they're selling. A, now they're selling it for two hundred million dollars. We also mentioned last week that the dilution because of the many owners. It's really not. They're not doing this for the expansion fee. Yes, it's a good chunk of money that comes in, but ultimately, what you're getting in it as, a, as an individual owner is a drop in the bucket. But what if what if going forward you came to a point where beyond a certain level you are paying less for your expansion fee, but you're coming into it knowing that there is going to be this separation and the first group of MLS two will have paid less, I guess, in terms of expansion because they are accepting the fact that they are going into a second division. The problem is, and once again, I'm just just off the top of my head. The problem is you will still have owners that you have to convince of a brave new world. And I don't think that that's so easy to do.
1: Yeah, all the expansion fees would go down because you're still always one bad season away from dropping down to that quote-unquote second division, so nobody's going to pay like top dollar when they know there's a threat of that. So that is why I think one of the main reasons why MLS has been so resistant to promotion and relegation all these years. Yeah, I mean, what proponents of it will tell you is that uh, if you create promotion and relegation, you create hundreds of potential MLS teams and potential new markets in one fell swoop, and so the overall interest level goes up uh, but yeah, I mean that that debate is going to rage on. <laughs> so, it, so when
0: it comes to other sports, your argument for why not to expand more—if we had an NFL team in I don't know Topeka or whatever it ends up what it ends up being—your argument is less is more. I mean, the NFL maybe more so than anybody has shown that less is more, especially in terms of the number of games that they play. You make right. it, you put a premium on it. So is it because, or is it because of the actual? on-field product in that soccer is a global game and therefore the market is the world and that doesn't necessarily apply to other sports.
1: Yeah, dilution of quality and maybe a little bit of just being a traditionalist and 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 just, I know it sounds rude, but just thinking it's unwieldy at, at a certain point. It's just too many teams to keep track of. I don't know. I, I, it's just odd to me to have a, a league with 40 teams. Uh, well, but, I mean, maybe but, to, but maybe you're... maybe once they did it, I'd get used to it and then I wouldn't think anything of it. But I mean, well, who, who, right is, now, the concept what, just strikes me as being
0: odd. Notwithstanding what you do for a living, why are we <laughs> asking you or anybody else to keep track of this? Why why do you have to be a savant <laughs> for the 30, 40 teams? I mean, I know yeah, you I for I your don't. job I have to do it, but the <laughs> the The Topeka person, the Topeka FC, and I'm just using it as an, as an example, but whatever it ended up being, they have their own team. They have their own team that they can follow, that they care about. They can go to the stadium, they can watch the game. Soccer is part of their culture. Uh, I was, as I said, part of their part of their palette. I don't know why now. As long as you make sure, and this is why it goes back to the NASL, as long as, long as you make sure that the ownership group that is coming in, because that, that ownership table, Masi, as I said in the State of the Union, that is, that's a table you want to sit down at. That is a table that eats very well. <laughs> that is a table that no matter what, the bill is going to get paid. And you want to make sure that you are continuing to add, add more of these billionaires that are not used to failing, that understand they are going to have to spend money, and you don't want fly-by-night type of situations coming, no matter how, you be, uh, how big you get.
1: Uh, last thing for me. So in terms of actual cities here, we're at 24. Okay. Uh, Nashville, Austin, and Miami will take us to 27. And then everybody's saying St. Louis and Sacramento are the next two after that. And then 30 is kind of up in the air. Uh, I mean, are you hearing anything? What's your sense there? Well,
0: Detroit will be back in the mix. San Diego type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's going to be Sacramento and St. Louis. And that's great. You know, you have, once again, a team that that's always the bridesmaid in terms of Sacramento. And it's as, as turnkey as you're going to get uh, right now. And they've been dying for it. And all these public comments from the commissioner, everything, they wouldn't have done this if there wasn't a understanding that this is what's going to happen. But by the way, uh, now it's $200 million, <laughs> that expansion fee. Uh, so that's another $50 million that they ha- had to, uh, have had to tack on to it. And yet they're still willing to do this, whether it's St. Louis or Sacramento. And then you're talking, I, I think Detroit— because of the market, it still is very attractive. Because of what is changing in Detroit, because of, maybe more, most importantly, having, in that case, it would be multiple billionaires uh, be involved, once again, and sit down at that MLS table that want it to be successful. The association with the Fords, and in particular with Ford Field there, will have to get worked out, and I think that they will have a much better explanation as to why they think it will work uh, a la Atlanta in, in a, quote-unquote, uh, American football, uh, environment. But I, yeah, I think those are, those are your logical choices going forward to get you to 30, you know, and then after that, but I don't, I I still don't think they're going to stop. I still, I still think they're going to continue to add teams and we're going to get into the mid thirties. And as you said, as it, as it goes on and people see this as a real benefit to their, their lifestyle and and community and culture that exists and as we see migration patterns in different places that, that that have massive amounts of people coming to them either because of whatever it's just beautiful or technology and jobs and all that kind of stuff there are going to be places that pop up that we're not even they're not even on our radar right now that say yeah we want to do that and uh and it's fun look this is all this is all a good thing there was not not so long ago Back in the day, uh, MLS was, are we even going to survive another year? Uh, was the contraction back in, whatever it was, 2001, one, two, was that going to fold the league? And thankfully it didn't, and thankfully they're in this moment where a lot of people want get, to uh, get on board. But, they, you know, they're, they're all very smart, so they will be sitting around saying, Remember what happened. Remember what happened in the 70s and 80s. Remember what happened with the NASL. And we don't want to do that. And I think that they will guard against, in multiple ways, making those same mistakes twice. And and look, you, you hope they do because whether you like MLS or not, you can recognize that it, I think that it's a positive influence on the game. Can it grow? Can it get big, bigger? Yes. Does it have problems? Yes. Uh does it have challenges? A- absolutely, but it is a positive influence on soccer in Canada and the United States going forward. And the fact that there are people that want to continue to put money into this, that is a good thing for all for all soccer fans. And it's good for USL and it's good for the women's game and it's good for soccer in general that this is happening. All right, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started today with a free seven-day trial. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case, that moment uh, of the week when you case for something. What is it this week? My case is that the sun even shines on a dog's
1: ass sometimes. Oh, my. Here we go. (laughs) The Champions League semifinals are set, and for the first time in 22 years, they include Ajax, a once great power that had fallen outside the mainstream of the sport. This season was the first time Ajax reached the knockout stage since 2006, the first time they took part in the group stage since 2014, and their campaign began all the way back in the third qualifying round. It is a great story. I enjoy watching this Ajax team, but let's not make it more than it is. I read a slew of tweets suggesting that this Ajax run somehow disproves the notion that European football is all about money because they only spent such and such, and here they are. Uh, You're always going to have exceptions. You're always going to have surprises, particularly in a knockout competition. But you have to look at larger trends. And if you can't see that the larger trend in European football is towards big spending clubs being the only ones that can consistently challenge for and win major trophies, then I can't help you. In the last 14 years, the Champions League title has been won by a club from England, Spain, Italy, or Germany. And we know what's happened domestically. This past weekend, Juventus clinched an eighth straight Serie A title. PSG secured their sixth Ligue 1 crown in seven years. And Bayern Munich took another step towards a seventh straight Bundesliga title. And by the way, Ajax and PSV have combined to win seven of the last eight Eredivisie titles and are 20 points clear of everyone else this season. So while Ajax might be outsiders in a Champions League context in their own way, they're also contributing to this overall sense of top heaviness in European football. I am not a fan of the Super League, but let's not pretend that because Ajax have reached the semifinals of the Champions League, the underlying premise that's led some to propose a Super League isn't undeniably correct.
0: Wow. Okay, so in my time, I have come across some uh, Debbie Downers and wet blankets and cynical, pessimistic, negative uh, takes. But man, oh man, Mossy, what's the problem? Why can't you just celebrate what we can admit is an anomaly, that is an aberration, that is a Lester-esque type of moment? But no, you want to bring everybody back to reality and recognize and, and use that as a negative. This is, this is a wonderful moment for soccer, for the romantic out there to say, you know what? It's not all about money. Okay? And it's not all about the super club. And yes, the little engine that could, the little engine that could that is IX, can rise above in a moment and provide, if if only for an instant, just a glimpse of something glorious and beautiful and pure. But no, that's not what you want to do. You want to drag them down. You want to drag down the team and you want to drag down what is happening in the world. I, I, I won't let you do that. D- did you... D- did you not enjoy it at all, or do, or, or do you feel that this is, that, that that this sentiment out there is permeating throughout the soccer universe that everybody believes that now something has changed? Uh, yeah, that's the sense I got reading some of those tweets.
1: <laughs> it's funny too, You brought up Lester, and it reminded me of another thing. In thirteen of the last fourteen years. The Premier League title has been won by Chelsea, Manchester United, or Manchester City. Uh, Chelsea and United, five each, and City, three right. times. Chelsea are owned by a billionaire Russian oligarch who spent insane amount of money on players. City are owned by a trillionaire Arab Sheik who spent insane amount of money on players. And United are the richest sports franchise in the world. The one exception in that span was Leicester City. I remember sitting uh, recently in a Fox Sports production meeting. And we were talking about the fact that some manager in England was complaining that uh, his team didn't spend enough money, and somebody in that meeting—I won't mention his name—actually said, "Wait a minute, Leicester City won the title. It proves it's not at all about money, and no manager can ever complain about spending anymore." And I wanted to get up and smack that person in the face because (laughs) if you don't understand the difference, it's an anomaly. It was a five thousand to one anomaly, literally the biggest fluke in sports history. But if you can't see the overall trend, thirteen out of fourteen years. So that's my issue. It's a great story, enjoy it, but understand that it uh, doesn't—it doesn't. dispel the overall... But uh, I don't
0: think that anybody is getting carried away in terms of how they are viewing what I actually Am I overreacting
1: done. to a tweet or two that just I, hit a nerve may, at the wrong time? You know uh, uh,
0: So for the first time, um, I, uh, I, uh, my wife and I sat down and watched uh, with our kids the Bad News Bears. You know this, uh, this franchise? You? Okay. Uh, not the latest one, the actual original ones from back then, which... Uh, <laughs> has it aged? Well, I mean, there's some interesting, uh, interesting moments. But that whole underdog type of feeling that we know sometimes sometimes can happen, doesn't happen uh, normally. And 99 out of 100 times uh, when it comes to whether it's the Bad News Bears or anybody else, the team with the most money, the team with the most talent, the team with the most players, uh, the elite super club type of team is going to win. We're just waiting for that for that one moment that we can celebrate.
1: Now, keep in mind, uh, the team that Ajax has been frequently compared to is Monaco, who went on a similar run a mm-hmm. couple of years ago with Mbappe and, and Thomas Lamar and Bernardo Silva and Fabinho and Bacayoko and Mendy. And then Monaco proceeded to sell all those guys over the next couple right. of years and it haven't been heard from again. So they went from being a feel-good story to the poster child for the – Economic realities of the modern game. It'd be interesting to see if Ajax go that same way too. They've already sold Frenkie De Jong to Barcelona. We'll see how many other players follow this summer, and then we'll be looking back at the, and saying, "Look, this is what's wrong with the European game: the fact that a team like this can't hold on to its players and build off the success and have kind of a sustained run."
0: Yeah, but how do you, how do you fix that? If if all these if, if if somebody came to you, okay, after you nurtured whatever it ends up being, and said, "We we'll pay ridiculous amounts of money," that's going to either fill your pocket or fill your coffers to create more talent, stuff like that, it's it's impossible to say, no, we, we can't possibly do that. Why why would you say no? No, no, absolutely. So, yeah. But So how do you change that?
1: Uh, by adopting an MLS-style salary
0: cap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that on our uh, Bundesliga uh, uh, coverage uh, this week. And, and
1: you gave me a shout-out on I TV you shout during that, that our, conversation, our, which our, I greatly appreciated. Let me pivot to a couple of other uh, big talking points from this uh, Champions League quarterfinal. A few months ago, I thought the VAR debate had been settled. Everybody had come around to it, but uh, this Champions League knockout stage has served to reignite that debate, Uh, at least in England. I think everywhere else, everyone's okay with it, but in England, it's still this raging topic. Uh, Critics of VAR have been emboldened by some of the incidents that have taken place. Have you seen anything in this Champions League knockout stage that's made you question your pro VAR stance at all?
0: No, not at all. And and that the English are angry only <laughs> only firms up my opinion that it's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I'm for it, but I'm willing to debate
1: somebody, I, I guess. But I, I don't understand people who, the way that, that City-Tottenham game ended, were still complaining, because that was the quintessential pro-VAR moment where you had a goal scored in stoppage time of the second leg that was going to decide the tie, send one team through at the expense of another, and it was clearly offside, and we were able to review it and correct it, and it, it, it didn't take that long. In one minute, they were able to correct that, and the right team went through, and yet there were still people complaining. So it just shows you that certain people are just fundamentally against it. If their team scores a goal and it gets waved off by VR, even if it was the correct call, they act like they got cheated. There's just something inherently cheap to them
0: of having a game decided well, by VR. then VAR. immediately they revert to that traditionalist type of stance and yes, okay, but but you're taking away the romance and you're taking away the beauty of that moment. Uh, what a, a wonderful MLS player who who now works as a pundit Alan Gordon uh, was uh, I, I saw him uh, tweet out something this week where he was he was so aghast at this this moment and we've created a new moment I think we talked about this before on the pod that the actual moment of the goal scoring is fundamental and um, at times it's iconic it, it 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 represents everything in a in a sport where so few goals are scored that moment is what you wait for and you hope for and you don't always get it. But when you get it, there is that incredible explosion that happens on the field in terms of the players, but there's also that explosion off the field. And we have elongated that moment now or <laughs> we have added a secondary moment and this, this kind of purgatory, which I actually love because I look at it as the ultimate production and show and form of entertainment where you have the act then you have the judgment that it that happens and then you have the the reveal the verdict if if you will and so you have two opportunities and I I, I am fascinated by this moment where everybody's looking around the VAR the, the goal has happened the players has celebrated Everybody celebrated but then there's the recognition that uh-oh Something could happen. And both sides are there. And the drama, it just drips with drama and intrigue as everybody in the stadium and on the field is looking around, waiting for this to happen. Now, there's a lot of people that don't want that and think that that completely has has changed the sport to a level and to a a situation that has killed that special moment. And I, I can understand that. But I like it because it has created a new and unique moment for a new generation that will be waiting for then that ultimate explosion where it is confirmed. Yes, you're your justification for screaming and yelling and your celebration is confirmed in that moment.
1: Again, to me, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You're you're gonna have two different situations, just plain blown calls, like Maradona, Hand of God type incidents. And then those that are sort of these in between that two people can look at and disagree and that aren't clear cut. And is it tedious to have to sit sometimes and see VAR review all those calls and still come out with a, a, a result at the end that not everybody agrees with? Yes, but I'm willing to pay that price to eliminate the blatant mistakes. Leave us only debating the debatable calls and get rid of the the blatant mistakes that, you know, I don't want any match decided by just something farcical like Maradona Hand of God. So if VAR eliminates that, to me, it's a step forward in the game. And I don't know how people can't sort of uh, recognize that, but but still, I mean, this debate rages on. The other big uh, uh, thing about the Champions League quarterfinals is we're once again relitigating Pep Guardiola's legacy because <laughs> City were eliminated. So now people who think he's a fraud have, have come out again and, and say he hasn't won the Champions League since he was at Barcelona with Messi. And so I don't know. What, what do you think? Are you on that page, or you, is that harsh? And, I, don't, I don't think that he
0: is a fraud. I think that he has a wonderful mind for the game, and I and I think that and this is where we get into romance, if you will. I think that the things that he has done and the way that he has forced us to re-examine the game and how it is played, how we look at it, that is good. He has propelled the game forward in in a good way. That it has all been done at the elite level with the best players in the world and at the best teams. I think that that is a fair, it's not an argument, but when you are talking about him, it is fair to bring that up. Uh, And and look, there is a specific skill set in order to manage the best players in the world. But, you know, this is what we talk about all the time, coaching them up. And, you know, so when people say, all right, yes, but what if he was at a middling or, or low level team? Could he do the same thing? I don't know if we're ever going to see it. But th- I think it's still fair to talk about Pep Guardiola and to make sure that part of that conversation is that all of this wonderful change and this incredible thinking that has gone on has happened in a very, very elite and unique type of environment that most coaches, most coaches never have at their disposal.
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be a binary choice, genius or fraud. You can just argue that some of his Champions League failures chip away at his greatness some, I think that's fair. I mean, I look at Pep as a guy that's great at the macro stuff, not so great as the micro. He has this philosophy that he's great at implementing and his teams play exactly the way he wants them to play. And they play so brilliantly and dominate games to such a degree that they can't help but win a lot of trophies along the way, but he's not a great Uh, game tactician as far as uh, his lineups and substitutions and you rarely come out of a game thinking boy he came up with a game plan specifically for that opponent in that situation that was brilliant so the micro stuff I think sometimes he trips up on and 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 it 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 can his team can get burned as a result but I mean the 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 big picture just getting the teams to play a certain way and and it's a style that I really admire so uh, I think he's he's a genius in that regard Uh, And and just to end on uh, the semifinals, so we have Liverpool, Barcelona, Ajax, Tottenham. I I tell you, I cannot make my mind on Ajax, Tottenham. I've gone back and forth, but I really don't know who's going to win that. Uh, Liverpool, Barcelona, which is going to be just an epic tie. I can't wait. But I'm leading Liverpool. I think they're the slightly better Mm, team. Interesting. You uh, think they're better than Barcelona? Yeah. Uh, How do you you see
0: it? I will take Barcelona.
1: And do you have any sense for the other one? Boy, it's tough, huh?
0: I mean, yeah, I'm gonna to pick Tottenham because I think it's at some point you keep picking against Ajax and they're gonna lose <laughs> at some point, right? I think uh, yeah. There you go. What were so you, you, you picking in the other one? So <sighs> <sighs> look at I'll
1: go I'll go Ajax just to go different from you. So I've got a Liverpool Ajax final, you've got Barcelona Tottenham.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Right, anything else? No, that's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and you send us some questions and uh, comments or concerns, and we pick out a few of them, and Mossy reads them out. All right, Mossy, what uh, do the folks want to know this week? At CV Manuk. hey,
1: Alexi, after yesterday's Champions League drama, I'm presuming this question was the day after the uh, Manchester City-Tottenham game, what's the greatest uh, game of soccer you can remember watching? Oof.
0: Well, you got one while I try yeah, to think one. Yeah, we both
1: uh, struggled with this. Incidentally, the Man City Tottenham game occurred the same day as our uh, Women's World Cup slash Gold Cup seminar. And I watched the last 20 minutes of that game sitting next to Allie Wagner, who is a huge Tottenham fan. Yes. She had the game on her uh, iPad. And I mean, it, it confirmed every theory I've ever had about women they are nuts because I mean <laughs> it was incredible I've never seen a person act that way but you know what I was happy for her because I love Allie and she, she I mean she is a die-hard. did you tell her then that inside. you
0: picked uh Ajax uh, I did not. I did you not. Did.
1: No. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, well, I'm gonna tell her that. For sure. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean this. That is was a, a great game. That was a that great game. Yeah. yeah, I mean that certainly recent that, Champions League yeah. history that is up yeah. there. I mean obviously the Barcelona comeback against PSG a couple that, of years ago. That
0: for me stands out. Yeah. I mean because we were at that point uh, Champions League we were working at Fox and I'll I'll never forget being in that in that environment. And just seeing everybody, whether it was you know uh, the, the talent we were working with on stage, uh, backstage, in front of the camera, behind the camera, people were coming in, and the the words started to filter out through the building, and, and people were just going crazy and and screaming. That was that was uh, that was something special.
1: It's funny we uh, we tend to gravitate to high scoring games or something inherently more exciting, I guess, about games with lots of goals. My right. father always tells me the best match you ever saw was brazil england 1970 world cup brazil won one nil on a goal by Jairzinho. it's a game where gordon banks made an incredible save on pele and it was just like first of all I, i've seen the game i have dvds of all of brazil's matches in 1970 and even though it was one nil there's a zillion chances both ways it was a game that was and it was just the level of play you had two of the greatest teams of all time a lot of people think that england were better in 1970 than even in 66 when they won the world cup and that Brazil 1970 team is widely considered the greatest team of all time. So just all the stars around the field, the level of play, it was it was an incredible just match. your dad trying to be cool. Yeah. He's just trying
0: to be cool. Everybody loves goals. Come on. <laughs> um, I know he listens. So. And I, I,
1: Alex Dowd, I got to bring this up. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> we, were, we were discussing this question uh, before we started taping, and he's a Chelsea fan. He brought up the 2012 Champions League final with Bayern Munich. Mind you, that is a game where Chelsea were outshot like... Fifty to two, or some crazy thing like that. Didn't even barely touch the ball, and they'd even win. They tied, and they won on penalties. And that's his great <laughs> moment as a sports fan. If that doesn't tell you everything about the man, so we're we moving on. You got anything?
0: Uh, yeah. How I about? Know. I
1: mean, just you. What your career? Let's say. What's your favorite game? The game you look back at most uh, fondly. Well, in your home? He,
0: there was a there was a huge. Uh, well, from an MLS perspective, uh, with the Galaxy in San Jose, I was uh, part of the Galaxy where we went up for. For nothing, and went back to San Jose and lost ultimately. So that was a nut, nutty, nutty uh, type of uh, game. It's it's in the folklore and the history of Major League Soccer, and to this day, I'll never forget uh, Ziggy Schmidt, the late Ziggy Schmidt. We used to we used to talk about that, and he. Uh, at that point, I wasn't uh, I wasn't playing. I was on the bench uh, for that game. And as the goals started to come in, where we needed to kind of shut it down, he's told me before, so, "I should have put you in and just let you had the ball away." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Yeah, no kidding, Zig." Uh, it was brutal. It was brutal from a Galaxy standpoint. So yeah, that uh, you know that that stands out. And and you know, look, being being actually on the field uh, in '94 beating Columbia, that that will. Forever be seared into my brain and consciousness, and one of the reasons why I'm even talking to you today uh, was because of that summer and certainly that that type of game.
1: A lot of U.S. fans bring up Landon Donovan against yeah. Nigeria as the greatest. I, I was ever. in
0: the stadium at that time. I was working uh, for ESPN, which had the rights at that time, and I'll never forget because I was. We were calling it. It was so packed that we could only be in a certain place for our studio, and they put us in the in what would be the the end zone type of area up high. I'll never forget. Arsene Wenger was down to my left hand side, and and I was there, and so I saw the entire Landon Donovan Algeria goal from that perspective behind the goal coming at me, with you know Tim uh, distributing the ball and then going on and then just complete sheer mayhem uh, after the goal. So it was that was a yeah that was a wonderful moment uh, and a wonderful game uh, and going back and forth with your emotions. So good question.
1: All right, next up at Matt AF thirty. At Statman Mossy, at Alexi Lalas, great podcast. Thanks a lot, Matt. But it was very (laughs) concerning how much uh, Berhalter references Zardes and what he can do. He is terrible at the international level and completely overmatched. Not really a question, but do you agree? Oh, I'm sorry he, that's Alex Dowd writing that I'm sorry I, I did the uh, you, you read, read it, the editor's the, note. Uh, yeah, George H.W. Bush famously when he gave a speech like read something in printed like
0: applause or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Matt. Yeah, so look, it doesn't matter who you are uh, you are going to have disagreements with your national team coach in terms of selection, in terms of formation, in terms of philosophy, and Greg Burhalter is going to be no no different. And Greg Burhalter is going to be no different in that a national team coach, he or she is going to have favorites that some you can understand and some that you can't. Uh, Greg Berhalter knows exactly what Jossie Zardes can, and, I, and, and to his credit, I think Greg Berhalter also knows what he can't. Also keep in mind that I know it's a small sample size, but we have yet to see a national team under Greg Berhalter that has had a, a, a healthy Josie Altidore as part of it. Which, And I do think that he is going to come into play. And that's a very, very different type of player up top. And I don't know if Greg Berhalter is going to go with that in that direction, but that that gives you a different side of what's going on. So just because Jossie Zardes is playing and being called in and is getting uh, plaudits from is his former coach at Columbus, but now his national team coach, I wouldn't automatically have that uh, be that that Jasse art is going to be the be all and end all going forward when it comes to uh, c- comes to attacking. Look, we all know that jassezardis is is limited. He can do some things well and other things uh, other things he can't. and we're going to really find out. Through the summer, and in particular when when they get st- when U.S. starts coming up into the into the latter rounds of Gold Cup against real quality opponents that can shut down whatever we have up top, and you're going to need someone. That, then we're going to find out exactly what this what this looks like. But I I agree with you in the sense that sometimes when I watch Jassy Zardes, I think that the ceiling has been hit, and this is what he is, good and bad, and. It's not yet good enough for us to do what we all know we have to do, which is compete against elite teams uh, out there. But I'm also not ready to discard him completely because I think that there are times and places where a Jossie Zardes uh, can help this national team. And he certainly understands. And by the way, as we've said before, it's not about Greg Berhalter picking the, the... best 11 players and it's certainly not about I'm picking the best 11 players that you think are the best 11 players it's about b- picking the best collection of 11 players and it might be some players, whether it's Jasse' Art or anybody else that you scratch your head but they do the job and in particular from Greg Burhalter who's so adamant about this is what we are doing this is what each position is doing, this is how we're going to play as a team. when you find those players that can do that, it doesn't necessarily matter what anybody. well it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. the only thing that matters is if Greg Burhalter believes that you can do that job all right what else?
1: Except at slang, one thousand one. The first player that comes to your mind when underrated is mentioned. Oh,
0: I don't know. You got some out there? Let's see. Um, oh, oh. Well, just, just in uh, in. Let's for example, Major League Soccer right now. There's a there's a player for LAFC, which is by the way the the number one team in the league. They are cruising. There's a guy by the name of Latif Blessing, who I think is oftentimes underrated in uh, the work that he does the multiple positions that he plays and his ability to be very very good at playing multiple positions. that just that just popped into my mind because I was watching the uh, LAFC Seattle game uh, yesterday and I don't think that he gets enough credit because that's really what we're talking about here and for some of the bigger teams it's hard because these names are so big and famous it's hard to say well this guy doesn't get enough credit
1: yeah, I mean this is uh, by the way I attended that LAF, LAFC LAFC and oh, we'll talk about it in the okay. back 3. This is a little bit recency bias but I've been thinking about this guy in the last 24 hours. You know Messi and Ronaldo have been so great that they've cast a shadow and you, you forget that there have been some players that have had like sneaky all-time great careers too during that period. And, and one guy I was thinking about is Kareem Benzema mm-hmm. who had a hat a trick uh, this weekend against Athletic Bilbao. There are a lot of reasons why Real Madrid struggled this season. He's not one of them. He's up to 21 La Liga goals, 30 in all competitions. Here's a guy that when he broke through at Lyon, looked like was going to be this great goal scorer. He goes to Real Madrid, played alongside Ronaldo. He's asked to reinvent himself as more of a playmaking center forward, kind of like the role that Firmino plays with Liverpool. And he's done so beautifully, and they've won uh, all those uh, Champions League titles with him, and Ronaldo loved playing alongside him. Then Ronaldo leaves, and at 31 years of age, they tell him, hey, we need to you to go back to being a prolific goal scorer and he's done it 30 goals in all competition this season and boy he's you look at his career numbers he's the fourth leading scorer in Champions League history behind only Messi, Ronaldo and Raul and next season he's probably going to surpass Puskas and become one of the top five leading scorers in Real Madrid history behind only guys like Ronaldo, Raul, Di Stefano. Boy, he's had a sneaky all-time great career and won all these trophies. And and by the way, even the one World Cup he played in 2014, he played well. He scored three goals, and then shortly thereafter, he was banished from the national team because of the issue with Valbuena. He was only like 27 at the time. He was on pace, uh, his caps and goals, uh, to potentially break the France records in that in that regard. So I mean, Benzema to me is a guy that's had a phenomenal career, great player, and I think maybe deserves even more credit than he already gets.
0: From a women's national team perspective, uh, Becky Sobren uh, would come to mind. I mean like she's a, a world champion so it's it's hard to be underrated and everything but on a team uh, that traditionally is so much about attack and scoring goals and all that kind of stuff you need somebody to defend and in particular it's 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 you know it's kind of like a Barcelona type of thing where defending for those types of teams that you know are going forward and have all the possession and at times are going to expose you in ways that other teams wouldn't and you not only have to be prepared for that but you have to, welcome it and, and accept that, you know, in a very different way. And I think she does recognizing that, look, I can scream and yell about having everybody come back and we can be compact and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what we are about. We are going to go forward and the, the 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 great names that we have and the great talent that we have is going to score goals, which means that I'm going to get at times strung out playing one one against one in space and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to deal it in the same way that P.K. or whoever at times does it for uh, for, for his team. That's it. Okay all right listen uh use that hashtag Ask Alexi and send us your questions and uh we will read them again uh, next week moving on the back three all right it's time for the uh back three some big stories and games and moments uh, out there mossy what do we have in our back three this week
1: i'll start with this alex morgan was named by time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world and her entry uh was written by mia Hamm who talked about how seeing how her daughters, how much they love Alex Morgan has made Mia appreciate like how important Alex Morgan is to this current generation of, of young female soccer players coming up. And also uh, how she admires Alex Morgan and I guess the rest of the current US Women's National Team for their fight for equitable pay mm-hmm. and all that. And so uh, Alex Morgan, the only uh, one of only two soccer players on the list, Mo Salah, was also on there. And, you know, he's obviously obviously a great player. And also as a Muslim, he's been outspoken about the treatment of women in the Muslim world. And so uh, what do you make of that, uh, Alex Morgan? I guess also you can throw Mo Salah in there getting in that list.
0: Both left-footed too. Okay, so Alex Morgan, I think, well, first off, from a Mia Hamm perspective, what I think Mia sees in her is that, passing of the baton and i'm not even talking about scoring goals and winning world cups or anything the passing of the baton of responsibility to uh to fight for what you believe is right for you individually for your team collectively uh for in this case equity uh and equality and I think that there is a pride that the previous generation that worked so hard to establish that philosophy and ethos, there's a pride when they see that next generation take a hold of that uh, and do that. Then you add the fact that she is an incredible, uh, world-class goal scorer. Uh, that uh, continues to seemingly get better and better and better. Uh, and when you need somebody to score, she is there to, to do that job. Then you add the fact uh, about how influential she is in terms of her remember, curating and profile and social media platform and, and, and all of that. Uh, the way that she plays, the way that she acts, the way that she looks, it is the complete type of brand package that you want from a superstar and that is exactly what she is and she does not wield that power willy-nilly she understands very very uh, clearly about when and where she wants to use it and when to leverage that going forward so I don't think it's any surprise congratulations to her first off to, to be included in that in that list uh and a some some pretty incredible company that you uh that you have there and i think it it shows that there is a respect for what she does on the field and how she has used the attention that she has gotten on the field to better things off the field and i think you want that from anybody and certainly when it comes to a time 100 titans section she is uh as big a titan as anybody uh, anybody out there it's going to be fun to see her in the World Cup this summer and talk about her for the goals that she scores and the person uh, that she is. The other part of it is, this is, and and going for the World Cup, this is where stars are made and changes happen. And who we think about going into the tournament might be very different as to who we think about going out of the tournament. And that's a a good thing. That's a good thing. I want to see who steps up and who, you know, takes that that spotlight and that platform and that opportunity with with both hands uh, and goes forward. So we'll see who, who emerges this summer, whether it's from the U.S. women's national team or whether it's just in general from uh, the Women's World Cup, who emerges this summer uh, as a potential for any future Time 100 list.
1: Right, next up, the uh, finalists are out for the PFA Player of the Year, which is a prestigious award that crowns the Premier League Player of the Year, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got uh, three City players, Aguero, Sterling, and Bernardo Silva, two Liverpool players, Virgil van Dijk and Sadio Mane, and then Eden Hazard. Let me ask you a couple of questions right off the bat. No defender has won this award since John Terry in 2005, but there's a a growing sentiment that van Dijk should win it because of the impact he's had for Liverpool this season at the back. Uh, I know you've said that your criteria for MLS MVP is the player uh, that scored in the most games. So, you know, these awards uh, generally go to attacking players, and, and you seem to be kind of on that page. But, I mean, can you recognize in an instance like this a defender that's had such a big impact that, that you could make a case for yeah, giving him the award? I
0: can, I can recognize and I can appreciate it in that we're even talking about him. And it's not just a, a throwaway type of thing, oh, let's just placate people by having a defender there. I mean, who was it uh, that was in uh, the last player of the year uh, awards that they threw in there? Um, from from Real Madrid center back. Uh, anyway, Varane. Right Was it Varane? Was it on the short list or something like that. Uh, anyway, the, the sometimes they I feel like they just put in a defender to say, well, we you know we 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 right, we have right the right. spectrum and there's no chance of them ever possibly winning. Well, I guess when you're up against Messi and Ronaldo, there's little chance for anybody, regardless of what position uh, that you play for for the most part. Yeah, look, I I would love to see him win for what it represents for defenders, but as I've said before, when it comes to players of the year uh, or most valuable types of players, there's nothing more valuable in the sport than putting the ball on the back of the net. And would would Liverpool be the same without Roger Van Dyke? No, they would be a lesser team. They wouldn't be where they are without him. But you could say that about a bunch of uh, a bunch of teams. I still don't think that ultimately, well, I don't know, maybe there's this sentiment going on over there that, this is the moment. This He's just been such... And that he is even in that conversation uh, and there's legitimate talk of giving it to him and it's not just, okay, we, we have him here and we've done our job and let's put, let's get to the goal scorers. That I, I, is a credit to him for how important he has been and the respect and the recognition that he's gotten.
1: By the way, it'd be the second straight year a Liverpool player won it because Mo Salah won it last year. He's not in the final six uh, this season, which is interesting. Let me ask another sort of larger philosophical question. Uh, there's a sentiment that it has to be a Liverpool or Man City player because it sort of reflects the fact that they've been clearly the two best teams and are battling for the title. But could you flip that the other way and say that the fact that Eden Hazard is on a Chelsea team that's been an absolute mess this season and he's the only reason that they're even in the top four or contending to finish in the top four. He, you know, His number, 16 goals, 12 assists in the Premier League. I mean, could you actually make a case that that elevates his candidacy above those other guys that are all part of,
0: part of sort of a well-oiled machine? You could, but nobody's going to make it. You could make, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely can make this you know this happens all the time and you you know there might be a right back for a mid to lower level uh team that has just been incredible in terms of doing his job on a consistent basis and that will never ever ever win a player of the year
1: as far as uh, i mentioned there's three city players there's a big push for sterling Uh, most of the headlines when these nominees were 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 released was van dyke and sterling sort of headline the Mm -hmm. list of you know uh, let me just say this. I I picked Benzema before in the Ask Alexi segment as my underrated player, but I've increasingly been thinking about Sergio Aguero's career and another guy that sort of because Messi and Ronaldo cast such a big shadow, we sort of don't appreciate how great a career Aguero's had. He's never won this award before. He's, he's the top scorer in the Premier League. And I don't know, part of me thinks if you're going to give it to a city player, like give it to him. Uh, now, I don't like turning a single season award into like a lifetime achievement thing. They gave it to Ryan Giggs one year late in his career, that I, and I thought that was ridiculous. Right. But in this case, it's not that big of a stretch. He's, he's one of the worthy candidates. He, you know, he's, he's, the numbers are there. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, if you, if you were going to give it to one of these city attacking players, Aguero Sterling or Bernardo Silva, do you lean one way or the other there?
0: I mean, I, I understand exactly what you're saying about Aguero, and, it's, and we had that question earlier in the pot, uh, in the pod about uh, underappreciated uh, or undervalued types of players. And look, I mean, he's one of the great strikers in the world, but there is that feeling out there that he he. I don't think anybody can put their finger on it, but that he hasn't done something, and I don't know what exactly what that is because the man is, is has scored boatloads of goals. So, but. But I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, and that he's up against Raheem Sterling, and Raheem Sterling, you know, has this on-field and off-field type of year where he's he is he's been more than a soccer player uh, in a, in a good way, in a, po- in a in a positive way, and I think that that will play into some of the sentiment when it comes to uh, to this vote, uh, and you know, they they may split the vote over there when it comes to Man City.
1: And uh, this will be my final rant okay. uh, for okay. today's podcast. There's also a PFA Young Player of the Year Award, and the nominees are out for that. And okay. it's uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, David Brooks of Bournemouth, Marcus Rashford, Declan Rice, West Ham, Bernardo Silva, and Raheem Sterling. And let me make my annual plea. They have to lower the age for this award. The criteria is if you're 23 at the start of the season, you're eligible for it. And so you end up with a guy like Raheem Sterling, who's 24 years of age. He- he's He made his Premier League debut in 2012. We're sitting here in 2019, and he's up for a Young Player Award. He's one of the established best players in the world. I think the spirit of this award, it's almost like the Premier League equivalent of like a rookie of the year or like new sort of breakthrough young player, and like, you end up guys. I remember like Eden Hazard and Gareth Bale were still getting nominated for this way longer than they should have when they were already like the best players but the that's Premier by like in the League had been. Then you made a choice to have
0: two bigger names on each of these awards. Yeah, I guess. You know? I mean, so
1: obviously Sterling should win this, if, if, but I mean, I just don't even think he should be a nominee. Like, I mean, would, you
0: know, maybe So Machidano, obviously like, Sterling should win this over Marcus Rashford. Yes. Yeah, I, If you're if you're nominated for the best player of the year, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right? shouldn't that in itself <laughs> <Exactly. talk? laughs> And if you're the only one that's nominated for the best player of the year, then yes, I I completely well, agree. I, with actually,
1: it. Bernardo Silva is too, so is he? Okay. They're, well, both, I mean, they're on both but, lists. So. But, but either. Of them, uh, but they're gonna say, so yeah, but then. knock it down to twenty-one or or make it like if you've played X amount of games already in the hundred games, then you're not eligible for any I don't know. Figure out some way to like the, the you get what I'm saying. The spirit of this award is that it should be like younger, newer Fresher faces and like,
0: but here's what's going to happen: People that might want to vote for Raheem Sterling as Player of the Year are going to say, "Oh well, let's just, we'll, we'll vote him for the younger player of the year. There he gets his moment, he gets his award, and then I can vote for Virgil Van Dyke or whoever it ends up being up up there." You know, what I mean, if if you honestly think, well, <laughs> if you honestly think that Raheem Sterling is the Player of the Year but he's not the young player of the year, then this is ridiculous, okay? So if you're voting for Raheem Sterling for player of the year, you have to vote for him for newcomer of the year, or young player of the year, whatever it's, uh, not newcomer, young player of the year, which isn't even young anyway, as we just established. Um, All right.
1: All right, so moving on, we'll end on this today, MLS. Lots to get to, but let, let's start with Red Bulls making news. There's there's some rumors flying around that Thierry Henry might be their uh, next manager. We're taping this on a Monday morning, so yep. by the time you hear this, there could be further developments in that story. You know, so but j- just give me your, your your overall feeling at the notion of Thierry Henry being the Red Bulls. Manager. Oh,
0: the notion! I love it. I I, I it's built in content. That's you know that's going to give us oodles and oodles of content uh, for for many many years. Uh, is it is it good for the, the Red Bulls? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a, obviously a very small sample size when it comes to his uh, his career as a manager, and it certainly it's not. Look, you're laughing over there. Why are you laughing over there? No, because- don't 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 anger Terry Henry. Okay, don't. I, I I have been there. All right, he will seek you out. <laughs> I'll- Maybe I'll, t- I'll tell the story some other time, but uh, it, it happened once. I'll, I'll save it for another pot.
1: I have a, I have a great ter- Thierry Henry
0: story uh, from, from back in the day. Uh, I, and, I, and I love him because I love big personality. I love big ego, and I think it would be uh, wonderful to see. And for a team like the New York Red Bulls that have strategically gone away from bigger signings, sexy signings, uh, and really focused on on young you know, youth development type of uh, stuff and, and being much more prudent and smart but not as flashy or sexy when it comes to their signings. Uh, this would be a... Uh, everybody knows who Thierry Henry is. And there's good goods and bads that come with that. But this would this would get us back interested in what is going on uh, with the Red Bulls. But he would have to obviously figure out a way to function within that uh, Red Bull organization. Look, this is all rumor uh, out there, so this might not even come to pass when it comes to Thierry Henry. And
1: the other thing is you sent out a tweet uh, that read the story of MLS so far this season, and then you just had the LAFC... And the LA Galaxy yeah. uh, logos, and you know we, we live in Los Angeles, so maybe we're a little bit influenced by that. But I agree with you. Uh, I think it's to see those two teams up there with the best records in the league. And and like I said, I, I attended uh, this weekend's game against Seattle. LAFC were absolutely brilliant. I mean, to watch that in person was incredible. The passing, the movement, all the goals they scored were beautiful. Uh, those two guys in midfield, K and Alvesda, yeah. running the show, and then up front, Vela and Rossi and Ramirez. Uh, so it was just a joy to watch. So I'm a believer. They
0: are an absolute juggernaut, and. Uh, ga- Galaxy off to a great start as well. It's not an LA bias. I mean, they are the top of the league. The one and two uh, supporters shield race. They're one and two, and the Galaxy have a couple games in hand. So this could be, get really, really interesting. Now the uh, the Trafico comes, uh, El Tráfico comes later on in the year. Are you are we talked about the El Tráfico thing, and whether you want to keep calling it that or not. I'm I'm, I'm continuing to call the uh, LAFC. Is there some pushback back against it? Yeah, them? there's some pushback, including uh, my friend Bob Bradley, who's not is not a uh, he does not like that name, which makes it more so why we. should <laughs> continue to call, them. but I love you, Bob. I know you're listening. Uh, no, it's uh, El Traffio comes uh, later on, I think. Uh, there's a, uh, a July game and a September uh, and an August game.
1: It is uh, July 19th. I come back from my travels in Europe this summer July 18th, but I, I will be attending that game. It'll be my first activity back in the United States after six, seven weeks. Well, out of the country,
0: you know. Look. Uh, you talk about big personalities and big egos, they, they, none none bigger than than Zlatan. And him talking uh, about VAR this uh, this weekend was wonderful. Saying uh, maybe MLS will punish me, but I am the MLS, so don't worry about it. I mean that's classic Zlatan. Uh, we we love it. Keep it going. I don't think they're gonna punish him or anything like that. He wasn't he wasn't happy, but it but it did highlight again what we were talking about when it comes to VAR. When it goes against you, you're you're angry, even if it's Right in front of your face that the correct call uh, was made. And by the way, w- w- as you said before, there is still a subjective nature when it comes to VR. Not everything is black and white. There is some that's that th- that it is either the ball went over the line or didn't go over the line, stuff like that. But there's still ultimately human beings making a subjective call, just much more informed with the with the video. So just because you believe that the call is wrong doesn't make it so. Whether you're David Mossy or whether you're Zlatan, so. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Uh,
1: no, I know you have something you want to plug.
0: I do. Okay. So this weekend, uh, I am heading off to Minnesota once again. Back on the road. Uh, heading off to Minnesota. The uh, Loons up there playing in their wonderful new Alliance Stadium Arena Field. What are we talking about? Uh, anyway, up there, uh, up there in. last will uh, ask Ben Grossman. In, in Minnesota. Uh, and it looks gorgeous from afar, which is why I can't wait to get there and actually see what's going on. The Loons are taking on uh, Wayne Rooney and his DC United. They're coming into town. And what we're going to do is on Saturday night uh, at the beer hall, uh, that of the 96 Taps. Now, not 96 beers on tap, but 96 Taps. It is uh, a large beer hall that is in the actual stadium. We are going to record a live version of of the State of the Union podcast. It is uh, gonna happen at 6 p.m. local time, which would be 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, if you are in and around the Twin Cities, please, please come out and uh, and check it out. We will package it for you uh, and give it to you next week as a uh, unique and different type of uh, State of the Union in that it's gonna focus, obviously, on what Major League Soccer has become, with this new stadium situation, but also much more so about the supporters culture that has arisen around all of these teams. We're going to be meeting some, uh, with some different people. We're going to have some different guests. Uh, we're going to have a fun time. Which means Mossy, uh, you get the you get the week off. You get to relax and just hang out. We might have you drop in uh, and from from afar uh, and maybe give you a, a little take here or two there that we might uh, drop into the uh, pod. But what what do will you got? Something to say? Will there
1: still be an Ask Alexi segment?
0: Yeah, there'll still be an Ask Alexi Perhaps segment.
1: Perhaps I'll ask a question. That'll be my yes. way of weaseling my way into this there we podcast go. That, and so that,
0: that's, that's what's going to happen. So Mossy's going to send a bunch of hashtag Ask Alexi questions to us uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the show. But I want to thank everybody ahead of time for, uh, for helping us organize this. It's going to be really fun, uh, as I've said, uh, just to see this environment that looks so good on television, looks so good afar, to be, uh, to be actually there, to record a live uh, version of the podcast. Uh, and anybody else out there that... Uh, that wants to come hang out and drink some beers and talk about soccer and uh, and do all that on Saturday night before the game, please uh, make your way to the stadium, to the beer hall in Minnesota over there. Uh, anything else? Nope. That is it. All right. Well, so we come to the end of yet another show. And my one big thing from today's podcast, if you are in and around American soccer for any length of time, you will come to the realization and, and the understanding that There is no sport more litigious than uh, U.S. soccer. It seems that every single day when we wake up, there is another lawsuit going on. Uh, There was another one today. Everybody's suing everybody when it comes to soccer. And that's partly because we are still, as as positive as we may be about where we are as a soccer-playing nation, we're still in a wild west type of environment with everybody vying for a piece of the pie with everybody recognizing that there is incredible opportunity out there and trying to harness it for their individual benefit now that in and of itself is not a is not a is not a problem this is america people see opportunity people want to do the things to make sure that they can capitalize uh, on that opportunity and with that comes uh lawsuits united states soccer federation uh, is being sued by plenty of people obviously we talk about uh the women uh the women's national team suing we have promoters suing we have clubs suing to get and it all it all revolves around money and the money that exists now on the surface that's that's not a good thing to have lawsuits flying around and have lawyers constantly employed when it comes to soccer But if you take a step back, it's not the worst thing in the world because with it can come some potential change and potentially some good change. And look, this is not about me taking sides for one side or or the other. But if and when these things get decided, there might be some change that pushes uh, pushes us and propels us into the future that is a good thing. So all of that is to say that I hope that all of these lawsuits get sorted out. And when I say sorted out, sorted out in a way that ultimately benefits the game. Because behind all of these lawsuits are people and groups that I do feel in their heart of hearts are doing it because they feel it is right. They might feel it's right for them personally, but also right when it comes to soccer. And ultimately, we don't want to do anything that is going to be detrimental to creating this unique and vibrant and yes, very, very different type of soccer culture that we have uh, in the United States. So th- with that, uh, I will just say I I remain incredibly bullish about the future of American soccer, despite the fact that there are so many lawsuits to cite the fact that at times we can in- disagree incredibly about the direction to go. And at times we can disagree so much that we actually take it into a courtroom. That's that's okay, because some of this stuff, as much as we may want it to be solved by sitting at a bar or having cooler heads prevail uh, and sitting down at a table, it's not necessarily going to be solved like that. And this these these are big boy and big girl problems. And this is what happens when a sport evolves and when a sport grows. And that is what is happening here, before our very eyes. In our lifetimes, the sport, has fundamentally changed on and off the field to lengths of which if you compare them to other sports or other uh, or other leagues out there if you're if you're talking specifically about uh, MLS are unprecedented and that's a good thing that's a good thing so all of that is to say I remain uh, incredibly optimistic and as I said bullish about the future of American soccer despite some of these what could possibly be viewed as setbacks or problems when it comes to the, uh, the lawsuits out there. Please don't sue me. Uh, it doesn't make you any cooler or any more of a soccer person to be involved in a lawsuit, even though it might seem like that from the outside. You're not anybody until you're suing or being sued when it comes to American soccer. No, that's that's, that, that's not the case. But if ultimately good comes out of these things and good uh, in, in, the, uh, in what I'm talking about, it means good for the game, then uh, there will be a reason and there will be a justification f- uh, for this. But I often wonder if, all of the money that's being paid right now to lawyers out there uh, to litigate these soccer lawsuits, if we had put that into player development, or if we had put that into creating fields for people to play? Would we be better off as a soccer playing nation? I don't know. Maybe that's a conversation for, a, uh, for another day. Anyway, uh, that is my one big thing from today's podcast. I thank you as always for tuning in to the State of the Union podcast. We'll be back out again next week. And as I said, it'll be a very special edition live from Minnesota. And when I say live, I mean live at the moment, but then you will not be listening to it live, but we will package that together I think it's going to be really interesting, some of the uh, conversations that we have out there with regards to what's going on in Minnesota, but more importantly, what's going on with soccer in the United States. Thank you so much. Anything else to add, Mossy, before we go? Nope. All right. We will see you again next week. As always, size the day.